Wow. Uh, thank you, Jeff. That was uh, the most kind, well-researched, witty <laughs> introduction that I could have hoped for. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, can I too acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today? Uh, to uh, thank uh, Professor John Howe, uh, Dorothy Luck, who's put together tonight's event, uh, my editor Chris Feek, probably the best wordsmith in the nation, uh, my aunts uh, Charmian and uh, Gabriel, who are here, to here tonight, uh, one of my predecessors as a me member for then Fraser, John Langmore, uh, random Mr Philip, uh, Philip Clark. Uh, Many former academic colleagues. Uh, I uh, spent uh, a few glorious months uh, visiting uh, Melbourne University and uh, very much enjoyed building up uh, those relationships here. Uh, and all of you for uh, taking time on a beautiful Melbourne night to uh, come out and talk about randomised trials and good, uh, good public policy. In 2013, a group of Finnish doctors published the results of a randomised trial on knee surgery performed for a torn meniscus, the piece of cartilage that provides a cushion between the thigh bone and the shin bone. The operation, known as a meniscectomy, is performed millions of times a year, making it the most common orthopaedic procedure in countries like Australia and the United States. The randomised trial was based on sham surgery, in which patients consent to being assigned either to a regular treatment or to being cut open and sewn up again without the operation being performed. Not only is the patient assigned to true surgery or placebo surgery based on the toss of a coin, they're not even told afterwards what happened to them. The 2013 randomised experiment shows that among middle-aged patients, surgery for a torn meniscus was no more effective than sham surgery. Not everyone welcomed the finding. <laughs> an, edit an editorial in the journal Arthroscopy thundered that sham surgery randomised trials were ludicrous. The editors went, on so, went so far as to argue that because no right-minded patients would participate in sham surgeries, the results were not generalisable to mentally healthy patients. <laughs> But sham surgeries are growing in importance, as many people realise that the placebo effect in surgery may be bigger than in any other area of medicine. Recent study found that three quarters of patients say they feel better after surgery. But in half the cases, those who got the sham surgery get, such a, get a similarly big improvement as those who got the real surgery. And that result suggests that millions of people every year are undergoing surgeries that make them feel better but that they would get just as good a boost if they got placebo surgery instead. Despite the advocacy of surgeons such as Melbourne's Peter Shung, sham surgery remains in its infancy. Part of the challenge comes down to how surgeons approach their job. Uh, Sydney surgeon Ian Harris says, patients often regard aggressive surgeons as heroic and conservative surgeons as cowardly. So what does a typical randomised trial look like? Let's suppose we wanted to know the impact of sleep on happiness by doing an experiment with the 100 or so people in the room. If we tossed coins, we'd end up with 50 people in the heads group and 50 people in the tails group. We might then ask the heads group to get an extra hour sleep tonight. And tomorrow morning, we would survey everyone as to their happiness levels. 
And if we found that those for whom the coin came up heads were happier, we might well conclude that a little more snooze helps you lose the blues. The beauty of a randomised trial is that it helps you get around problems that might otherwise plague an observational study, such as the possibility of reverse causality, that perhaps happier people tend to hit the hay a little earlier. Randomised trials have a long history in medicine, going back to James Lynn's work on scurvy, Ambrose Paré's work on treating battlefield burns, whether it was better to pour water with, uh, with a little rose oil uh, or burning oil onto a burn. In the 1800s, a randomised trial showed that bloodletting didn't in fact cure patients, a result that came just a little too late for the discipline which had already decided to call one of its leading journals The Lancet. <laughs> In the 1940s, British researcher Austin Bradford Hill was working on streptomycin, a promising new treatment for tuberculosis. The disease had nearly killed Hill as a child and still at that time claimed the lives of nearly 200,000 Britons annually. Hill used scarcity as an argument for conducting a randomised trial of streptomycin, rather than just rolling it out across the country. He said, we had no dollars and the amount we were allowed by the British Treasury was only enough for, so to speak, a handful of patients. In that situation, I said that it would be unethical not to conduct a randomised trial. The trial in 1954 randomly injected 600,000 US children with either polio vaccine or salt water. The vaccine proved more effective than the salt water and universal vaccination for polio began the following year. The 1960s saw randomised trials used to test drugs for diabetes and blood pressure and the contraceptive pill. And in between, there's been plenty of randomised trials for ineffective treatments. Today, only one in 10 treatments that looks promising, ends up finding its way through the three stages of randomised trials and onto the market. In each case, those taking the new drug are compared against people taking a fake drug or placebo. For alleviating discomfort, the placebo effect works in surprising ways. For example, placebo injections produce a larger effect than placebo pills. Thanks to randomised trials, we know that if you want to reduce depression, you should give the patient a yellow tablet. For reducing pain, use a white pill. For lowering anxiety, use a green one. Sedatives work best when delivered in blue pills, while stimulants are most effective as red pills. The makers of The Matrix clearly understood this when they devised a moment for their hero to choose between a blue pill and a red pill. And for my own part, Randomised trials have shaped how I live my life. I used to take a daily multivitamin pill until I read a meta-analysis of randomised trials suggesting that, if anything, multivitamin supplements reduced longevity. Not wanting to send myself to an early grave, I stopped taking them. <laughs> Likewise for fish oil. As Jeff's noted, I'm currently wearing compression socks as a result of the randomised trial that showed that among Australian marathon runners, uh, compression socks aid recovery. And whenever I remove one of my three sons' band-aids, 
I'll do so quickly rather than slowly. As a result of the James Cook University randomised trial that showed that the fast approach is less painful than the slow, the slow approach. And the randomisters are shaping social policy too. In Melbourne, the Journey to Social Inclusion experiment was our first randomised trial of a homelessness program. The intervention lasted for three years and provided the 40 people in the treatment group with intensive support from a social worker. That caseworker helped them find housing, reconnect with family, access job training. Another 40 people in the control group didn't receive any additional support. So what do they find? Well, if you're like me, you might have assumed that uh, three years of intensive support would see all participants happy, healthy and employed. But by and large, that's not what the program found. Those who were randomly selected into the program were indeed more likely to have housing and less likely to be in physical pain. The journey to social inclusion had no impact on reducing drug use or improving mental health. At the end of the three years, two people out of the 40 in the treatment group had jobs, the same number as in the control group. Journey to social inclusion is a reminder of how hard it is to turn around the living standards of the most disadvantaged. Hollywood loves to depict overnight transformations, but the truth when you're dealing with people who've suffered deep trauma is that recovery is often two steps forward, one step back. And unless we properly evaluate programs designed to help the long-term homeless, there's a risk that people of goodwill, social workers, public servants, philanthropists, will fall into the trap of thinking it's easier than it really is to change lives. Sure, there's plenty of evaluations of our Australian homelessness programs that have produced bigger results than this one. But because none of those evaluations was as rigorously conducted as this one, there's a good chance they're overstating their effects. In Canberra, we did world-leading randomised trials of restorative justice conferencing, bringing offender and victim together to discuss what the perpetrator should do to repair the harm they've caused. Cases judged suitable for restorative justice are randomly allocated to it or to the traditional criminal justice process. Studies in Australia and around the world conclude not only that restorative justice reduces crime, but also that it helps victims. In one study, victims of violence were asked whether they would harm the offender if they got the chance. When cases went to court, Nearly half the victims said afterwards they still wanted to take revenge, compared to just one in ten who'd gone through restorative justice. And just imagine if we could randomly trial the impact of prisons. Just imagine if there was a prison authority somewhere in the world agreeing to run an experiment to answer the question. Then again, it's, it's a crazy thought. I mean, here we are in a law school recognising the principle of equal justice, and there's no way you can imagine a prison authority conducting a randomised trial of incarceration. Or so you might think. In 1970, the California Parole Board actually agreed to run a randomised experiment. 3,000 prisoners coming up for release were divided into two groups. Using a random table of numbers, half had their sentences shortened by six months, and the other half served their regular term. After release, authorities looked to see who re-offended and found no difference between the two groups, suggesting that the additional six months behind bars 
did nothing to make the streets safer. We're learning a lot in the classroom from randomised trials. In one experiment, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation conducted a randomised trial of coaching programs for teachers. Each month, teachers set, sent videos of their lessons to an expert coach who worked with them to try and eliminate bad habits and try new techniques. By the end of the year, teachers randomly selected into the Gates Foundation's coaching program had gains in their classroom equivalent to several months of learning. Another study looked at the Promise Academy, a school in Harlem that operates on a no-excuses model, classes sometimes running as long as 8am to 7pm. Across the United States, the average African-American student is two to four years behind his or her white counterpart. But the Promise Academy found that students that won a lottery improved their performance by enough to close the black-white test score gap. As lead researcher Roland Fryer pointed out after the results of the Promise Academy's randomised trial were released, this overturns the fatalistic view that poverty is entrenched and the view that schools are incapable of making a difference. He argues that achievements for the Harlem Children's Zone are the equivalent of curing cancer for those kids. Developing countries are awash with randomised trials. In Indonesia, a randomised trial tested the impact on students of randomly doubling teachers' pay. In India, a randomised trial of 19 million people estimated the impact on corruption of the rollout of biometrically identified smart cards. When the Mexican city of Ayacan found that the council had only enough money to pave about half the streets, the mayor saw an opportunity to assuage voter anger and learn about the impacts of road paving. Rather than selecting the roads herself, she worked with researchers to randomly choose which streets to upgrade. In Kenya, economists worked with the National Utility, Electricity Utility, to randomly give some households a discount on the connection fee. And by varying the subsidy, they could see how much households valued being connected to the grid. Businesses, too, were working on randomised trials. Cora, a question and answer website, devotes about a tenth of its staff to running randomised trials and is conducting about 30 experiments at any given time. Amazon's virtually built on randomised trials and indeed, as one uh, uh, observer puts it, uh, virtually every pixel on the Amazon homepage has had to justify its existence based on randomised trials. In retail, if you're wondering why about half of all posted prices end in nine, you can blame marketing randomised trials. If you have a Coles flyby card, you're part of a randomised trial. One in a hundred cards is randomly selected to be part of a control group, which receives no promotional material. When the board wants to know the impact of their promotional material, they have a randomly selected control group. The shade of blue on the Google toolbar is the result of a randomised trial conducted by Marissa Mayer, then a vice president at Google. She proposed an experiment that tested 40 different shades of blue. And with billions of clicks, even a small difference means big bucks. Google estimates that getting the precisely right shade of blue added about $200 million to the company's bottom line. Google scientists have access to around 15 exabytes of data and around 40,000 searches every second. And that suggests that big data is not an alternative to randomised trials. If Google gets value from randomised experiments, 
Same must be true for every other researcher on the planet. Running a randomised experiment in business is often called A-B testing and has become integral to the operation of firms such as Netflix, eBay, Intuit, Humana, Chrysler and Lyft. One US executive in a firm that does plenty of randomised trials uh, says that his firm has three cardinal rules. Uh, you don't steal, you don't harass women and you've got to have a control group. That's right, you can be fired for not having a control group. You can even use randomised trials in your own life. Last year I used Google Ads to run a small experiment of my own. Anyone who searched the web might have seen an ad for a new book about randomised trials. Web servers were randomly shown one of 12 possible book titles. My editors and I each had our favourite titles, but we'd agreed to leave the final decision to a randomised experiment. A week later, over 4,000 people had seen one of the advertisements. The worst performing title, by which I mean not a single person clicked on it, was Randomista's How a Powerful Tool Changed Our World. Runner-up was Randomista's The Secret Power of Experiments. The clear winner, Randomista's How Radical Researchers Changed Our World. The experiment took about an hour to set up, cost me about $50. A few years earlier, I'd written a, written a book on inequality uh, for the same publisher. Uh, my editor, Chris Feek, who is here this evening, uh, wanted to call it Fair Enough. Uh, my mother suggested Battlers and Billionaires. After running Google Ads for a few days, we found the click rate for my mother's title was about three times higher. Chris Feek graciously concluded that the evidence was in and Battlers and Billionaires hit the shelves the following year. And just to show that randomisation can be implemented on the spot, I'm pleased to say I've done a randomised trial to allocate a sought-after product, a free copy of my book. <laughs> Putting tonight's uh, RSVP list into Excel, I assigned each of you a random number, then sorted the sheet by those numbers. So congratulations to Emily O'Connell and Alex McLaren. Please down, come down afterwards to get your free copy of the book. <laughs> All I ask in return is that you might mention it on social media. <laughs> in the early 2000s, successful businessman Blake McCoskey visited villages outside Buenos Aires and was struck by what he saw. He said, I knew somewhere in the back of my mind that poor children around the world often went barefoot. But now, for the first time, I saw the real effects of being shoeless. The blisters, the sores, the infections. To provide shoes to these children, McCoskey founded Shoes for Better Tomorrows, which was soon shortened to Tom's. The company made customers a one-for-one -one promise. Buy a pair of shoes and Tom will Tom's will <coughs> donate a pair to a needy child. Tom's has given away more than 60 million pairs of shoes. Six years in, McCoskey and his team wanted to know what impact Tom's was having. So they made the brave decision to let economists randomise shoe distribution across 18 communities in El Salvador. The study showed that the canvas loafers they were giving away didn't go to waste. Most children wore their new shoes most of the time. But the children's health wasn't any better, as the Tom's shoes were generally replacing older footwear. Free shoes didn't improve the children's self-esteem, but it did make them feel more dependent on outsiders. Let's be clear about what this meant. Corporate philanthropy wasn't an add-on for Tom's. It was the reason that McCoskey founded the firm. 
And now a randomised trial had shown that among children in El Salvador, free shoes were not doing much to improve children's outcomes, but were fostering a sense of dependency. Yet rather than trying to discredit the evaluation, Tom's responded promptly. As lead researcher, economist Bruce Wydick wrote, Tom's is perhaps the most nimble organisation any of us has ever worked with, an organisation that truly cares about what it's doing, seeks evidence-based results on its program, and is committed to reorienting the nature of its intervention in order to maximise results. In response to children saying that the canvas loafer isn't their first choice, they now give away sports shoes. In response to the dependency issue, they now want to pursue giving the shoes to kids as a reward for school attendance and performance. Never once as researchers did we feel a pressure to hide results that could shed an unfavourable light on the company. We applaud them for their transparency and commitment to evidence-based action among the poor. No one should fault Blake McCoskey for setting up Tom's Shoes, acting based on the best available evidence at the time. As WH Auden once put it, we may not know very much, but we do know something. And while we must always be prepared to change our minds, we must act as best we can in the light of what we do know. But when the new evidence arrived, Tom's shifted. And because of that, the Tom's randomised trial doesn't look like a failure at all. Blake McCoskey's goal in establishing Tom's was to improve the health of poor children. The company evaluated its approach. It didn't work, so it changed tack. The philosophy of test, learn, adapt is at the heart of randomisation. Randomised trials flourish where modesty meets numeracy. An experimenting society doesn't just mean we do more rigorous evaluation. It also means we pay attention to the result. Randomisation is changing the world in medicine, in business, social policy, and potentially even in your own life. A few more coin tosses, anyone? Thanks very much. <laughs>